This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, let's do a little experiment this morning. Why don't we raise your hands with me? Parents, um, how many of you parents would say that your kids have told you something, promised you something, and you had your suspicions that... It probably wasn't going to happen. <laughs> How many? <laughs> yeah, all of you. <laughs> right? And my guess is, in the end, your suspicions uh, turned out to be accurate, right? That with the lines like, I'll clean it up later. I'll come back home right after the game. Uh, or if your kids are homeschooled like mine, if you let me off today, I'll do twice as much school tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, Right. The lines that we doubt when we hear them. Now, on the flip side, teens, kids, how many of you would say that your parents have told you something and your suspicions also turned out to be accurate, that that promise fell through? Come on, let me see them. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're sitting next to you, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. a little fear and trepidation going on. Listen, sometimes moms and dads are wrong, too. I remember being 12, 13 years old, and my dad had promised us uh, that we were going to go to this outdoor drive-in movie theater where they showed three movies, three new movies, back to back to back, starting at 9 p.m., and it got over like 2 a.m., and we never went. We never went. I don't know why my mom didn't get behind that idea. I just never, I ne- I, today, I don't understand that, but... Um, But parents, children, everyone on planet Earth has learned at one point or another that people can't always or don't always keep their word. And so doubting happens in every single arena of life. That's the invention of the contract, right? Employees and bosses, they have doubts about each other, right? Maybe uh, some of our doubts about a particular fast food restaurant has been confirmed enough times that we don't think they're ever going to be fast. Uh, Sometimes in marriage, right, we've gotten to the point where we just no longer expect our spouse to remember our anniversary because our doubts have been confirmed enough times. (laughs) It wasn't my wife, okay? I don't know about you. I don't know about you. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it is anniversary. You know, I don't know. But this can happen with anyone in any group, anywhere. And the longer and the more frequently that we have doubts about someone keeping their word, the more convinced we are of those doubts. And the less and less surprised we become when they get confirmed. And you might, you know, even just realize just how much doubt you have by how much or how little of surprise you feel when those doubts get confirmed. And in fact, if we become uh, doubtful for so long and so much that we can even come to that point where we just, we just stop, right? We just stop being surprised. We just stop paying attention altogether, can't we? 
And it all starts with doubting someone's word. Now, you might not have thought of it in this kind of uh, progression before, but this is actually how doubts with God work too. They work in the, in the same way, that any one of us can be on this spectrum kind of, of, of moving in this progression from doubting what God said long enough and frequently enough to come to the point where we're more complacent and, and we become less and less surprised and we begin to, as we begin to interpret those doubts as being confirmed and we can get to the point where we simply stop paying attention altogether. Maybe we're present physically, but we're checked out otherwise. And this can happen bit by bit, inch by inch, yard by yard. And, and we can know if we're on that spectrum, uh, progressing from one to the other, from doubting to complacent to no longer paying attention to one degree or another, really the same way that you know that with any other relationship, by asking yourself whether or not you still pay attention to what they say and to what degree. Would you take action on something if you heard it? Would you just blow it off? How surprised would you be if that, what you heard actually happened? Uh, do you bother spending any time considering what's being said, or do you just immediately dismiss it off the bat? As you consider those questions, I would point out that my observation is that the average Christian, it's not that they doubt that God's word is, is true in the sense that it's mostly accurate. It's that they doubt that it's potent, that it's effectual, that sin gets punished, that life works like that. And it points to an effective loss of any kind of real fear of the Lord. And that's a dangerous place for anyone to be. And it could be, in a room like this, that more of us struggle with this than what we would care to admit. Now to be sure, um, as we look at scripture, I want to make sure we reassure ourselves of something here. Um, we see people across the spectrum in scripture that had doubts, right? Ever heard of doubting Thomas, right? That was one of Christ's apostles, Right? The church is also to be a safe place to figure out our doubts. But, but, when doubts settle in and we choose to stop paying attention and we even begin to look down then on what God said, that can become a dangerous place. A dangerous place. And this morning, this morning, I want us to see a, a somber warning about this from a group of people that sadly rode this train of progression all the way down to the very end of the line. I want to do that uh, by inviting you to turn with me in our Father's Word to 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 11. 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 11. If you're having trouble finding this book, by the way, Turn to the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and then right in there you'll, you'll see all these books that start with first this, second that, and just keep flipping all the way over to the end of that lineup, and you'll find Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And what we see going on in this text is that God is finally keeping his word. See, the, the people of Israel, specifically the nation of Judah being talked about here, they had a corporate, lifelong contract with God. 
what we call in the Bible a covenant. And this contract had been going on for 890 years. That's hard for us to imagine. (laughs) And in that agreement, if the nation was to walk away from God in disobedience, then God was to bring judgment on them. And over all those years, the nation had walked away from God more times than the Minnesota Vikings have lost the Super Bowl. In other words, many, many times. But after 890 years of God coming in, patiently disciplining them, showing them compassion, providing a solution, after 890 years, God is now issuing a different kind of blow, a very final kind of blow in the sense that it's going to bring about an end. Because they are refusing to listen to God, they're ignoring his word, a final judgment will fall that will forever change the course of this nation. And we see it the end of this nation recorded in 2 Chronicles 36. Beginning in verse 11, we read, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself. Circle that. Before Jeremiah, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck, and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers, the priests, the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Take note here. All right, the king, the priests, and the people, everybody, right? Everybody's included in that, have all likewise been exceedingly unfaithful. They pridefully blew off what God was telling them. They would physically hear the words, but in pride they would stiffen their necks instead of listening. It says they all acted like all the other Nations. What does that mean? Well, just imagine the Ten Commandments, but then doing the opposite, okay? All right, making gods, worshiping idols, worshiping any other god except for the Lord, killing innocent people, stealing, lying, having sex out of marriage, and so on. And they would do these sins even in the temple, right? That's how much they were rejecting God's word. And this is what they were choosing to do. This is how they were choosing to ignore God's word. And this is what God's responding to. Uh, Figuring, maybe they're figuring that God doesn't care, God doesn't know, or he isn't there. Verse 15 then follows. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion. Circle that. On his people, And on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had, catch this, no compassion. No compassion. The result that's explained in the following verses 
is what happened when the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC finally stormed the gates of Jerusalem and burned the city, destroyed it, and it was a judgment of death and destruction on the people, the priests, and the king that was unparalleled. And the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah is what happens here in this chapter as they disregarded the word of the Lord. So as we step back then from this text, and we weigh this, you know, in light of, of Scripture, within the context of what's been going on inside the Old Testament. If you've been here with us for the Gospel Project, you're more familiar with that, but many of you could easily read your Bibles and become familiar with that. But when we weigh it within Scripture, what we can see is that all the way along the line, God was clear on what was going to happen. The terms of the contract would be fulfilled at one point or another. And this stands then as just one example of many that are teaching the exact same lesson. The lesson that we're shown here is that in the end, God will always keep his word. In the end, God will always keep his word. We can have doubts about his words. We can try to forget them. We can reject them. We can turn a blind eye towards them. But God won't. God won't. He will always keep his word. And our doubt, our ignorance, our rejection, or so forth, it's sometimes then exposed in God's response. It gets exposed by his Word. Our apathy towards it can get exposed. We can uh, see our surprise getting exposed. We can especially see our sin getting exposed. You know, we can pretend like we don't know that it's, un, you know, being unkind or lying or having sex outside of marriage isn't okay. All that gets exposed, though, in God's words and in his judgment. Whenever we act in any of those ways, we do so only to our detriment. Our detriment. We act like a man who uh, leased a car, and uh, then after a while he started missing the payments on it. And he enjoyed having the extra cash all the way up until the moment when he looked out the window and saw the tow truck repoing his car. (laughs) Then he got angry. (laughs) But that was the terms of the contract. That's the terms of the contract. Well, in the same way, in life, when we ignore what God's word says, our contract, our covenant, it's only to our detriment. It's only to the future repossession of our vehicle. We may think that we're getting away with something. We may enjoy having a little bit extra. We may think at times that someone else is getting away with something. But God will always keep his word. Any other kind of attitude towards God's word is a breach and contract that we can't afford. And that was the dangerous choice that Zedekiah in our passage made. To hear the word and instead of responding with, you're right, God, I'm sorry, and I'm going to respond in actions that mark that change. He stiffened his neck. It's a word picture of pride. The late theologian R.C. Sproul, he once said uh, this about this issue. Our creator never fails to keep his promises, even when the fulfillment of his word 
seems slow in coming, we can nevertheless be assured that he has not forgotten it. We must also never be so prideful as to think that God only means part of what he says in his scripture and that he needs us to figure out what we should take seriously. If we pick and choose, then we will be well on our way to destruction. The truth that God always keeps his word, it should cause us to have a desire to deal with the doubts that creep up about his word. It should cause us to have a, a hunger and a thirst for knowing what it is that God says and doing it. And in particular, in this passage, it should cause us to have a warning of the hazard of ignoring it. A warning. And that's one of the two very important things that I think we can glean from this passage. We're going to look at two important things and one key reason for it. And the first realization that we glean here from the fact that in the end God will always keep his word is a warning. A warning. See, it can be easy for us to look at a passage like this or look at the Old Testament and get caught up in the, God's use of the Babylonian king to utterly destroy a nation that he birthed. We can get lost in the symptoms of it, of disdain for God's word, and we can do so to the level where we miss the underlining cause. The underlining cause. Look back at the text with me. Look back at the text. What was the underlining cause here? What's the root? Verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old. One of those millennials. Said all the baby boomers. <laughs> Typical millennial. When he began to reign, he reigned 11 years, only 11 years, in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of of the Lord. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Did you catch it there? It was pride. The root was pride. The warning for us today, it starts with pride. It starts with pride in the 20 and 2019. See, arrogance will eventually deafen our ears. And that's why verse 16 then follows. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Pride was the root. It's then that verse 17 follows. Therefore... Now, in studying the Bible, we like to say that when you see a therefore, it is there for a reason. I know. Very funny. Those are the kind of guys you want to invite to your party. Okay, it's not that funny. But it is true. All right? The resulting judgment had a reason. Pride. Pride that mocked, it made fun of. Pride that despised, that disliked, that looked down on. Pride that scoffed. It, it, it blew off what? God's word. So therefore, there was no remedy left for the sin, only judgment. Pride that goes on 
unaddressed will eventually find its way into trouble. Don't we have another biblical saying about that? Something like pride goes before the fall, and yet we seem to fall for it a lot. There's no fooling with God's judgment, though. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Sin, pride, it always has consequences, both natural and spiritual, material and immaterial, temporal and eternal. And God is not mocked. He will keep his words on judging sin. That's the warning. It's to not let our pride deceive us into thinking anything less. To not let it deafen our ears. Now let's connect the dots here. I realize that it's not hard to find examples of this kind of pride, of looking down and having stain for, for what God's word teaches. When we look at tweets and we look at Facebook and we hear the words of certain politicians and we look around at our friends and things that they might say, it's not hard to find those things there. But personally, I wonder if we have ever considered whether or not our, some of our doubts just spring from pride. Some of our doubts, our wonderings, whether or not they're really just because we don't like what God's word has said. I wonder if we've ever considered that an apathetic response to God's word is actually an example of pride. Because that's the warning that's here. Of pride. That's hiding. That's excusing our sin. And it's a warning we need to pay attention to if we're to avoid judgment, if we're to avoid sowing what we don't want to reap. A couple weeks ago, I was praying, and one of the things that had been on my mind um, was how holiness is connected to how God uses us. And so I decided to pray and just ask the Lord if there was anything in my life that wasn't holy that he wanted to address. And I suddenly had a very nervous feeling, uh, that feeling like you opened up a cupboard door in front of your kids and you said, just take whatever you want. And that sudden realization that the audience that you just said that to is guaranteed to clear out the cupboard, you know, <laughs> they're going to take something, right? And sure enough, within a moment, the Lord immediately brought something to my mind that he wanted to address, and I was tempted the same way that our pride always tempts us. It's to ignore it. <laughs> I didn't really hear that. <laughs> That's not, you know, that, that really couldn't be the word of the Lord. Right? That's hardening our hearts. That's stiffening our necks. I was tempted then to blow it off. That's no big deal, right? Scoffing. That's what scoffing is. That's mocking. That's the same thing that the nation was doing. And if we take that kind of route of doubting and disbelieving God's word frequently enough, we will end up rejecting and ignoring God's word altogether. Just like the nation of Judah did. That's what pride looks like when it deafens our ears. 
And one of the chief fuelers of this kind of pride to refuse to listen is time. It's time. Ignore something long enough and you will disbelieve it altogether, right? I mean, just think about the national debt. $21 trillion. Ignore a problem long enough and you will disbelieve it's a problem altogether. (laughs) That can happen. So let me ask the question. Then why does our God wait? Why does he wait to keep his word? Why is it that he's faithful to keep his word in the end? Why is it that he waits and allows our world now to head down this course? Why is it that he waits with the nation of Israel then to allow sin, disbelief? It rises, it grows, that pride fuels it on time to go on. Why does he allow it? One word. Compassion. Compassion. Look back at verse 15 with me. The Lord The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. It was only the rejection of God's compassion out of pride that resulted in a judgment that says in verse 17 that it was no compassion. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The second realization we need to have about this truth is that in the end, God always keeps his word. The realization about this truth is that he does it out of and in a way that is compassionate would be in this same vein that 600 years later, in this very same city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed, that another man would tell a story. A story about some men who had rented a piece of property from an owner who was in another country. And the owner sent an employee to go collect on his contract with the tenants. But the tenants beat the guy up instead. And they ignored the contract. So the guy sent another one, and this guy they killed instead. So finally the guy sent his son, saying, certainly they'll respect my son if they know it's good for them. But instead, they killed him too, thinking that they'd finally get the property for their own. And so the owner came, and he destroyed the tenants. The man who told the story was Jesus. And he told it during the week leading up to him being hung on a cross by the men he told the story to. Jesus came as the final messenger in a long line of God's persistent compassion to offer a remedy of mercy that no one else could offer out of compassion. As my favorite author once put it, We preach a gospel of mercy, but it is mercy bought at a terrible price. We are saved from the judgment of God, not because he decided to toss justice in the gutter, but because he poured it out on his own son on the cross. God kept his word in every regard at the cross where judgment and compassion kissed. So that in the end, 
God has perfectly and always kept his word in every single way. And he has done it in a compassionate way. Let me bring this home for us. Here's the key reason why this matters. It's an incentive behind our listening. Our listening to God's word. It really matters. I challenge you not to assume that you're doing that. Not to assume that you are listening well. Don't allow pride to quietly plug your ears. The doubts that are coming up, don't allow them to slowly consume your trust. Friends, God will always keep his word. His word in judgment and his words in compassion. So are we listening? Are we listening? A couple of questions to help us diagnose whether or not we are. Number one, do we pay attention to what God's word is saying? To what degree? Do we pay attention to what God's word is saying? And to what degree are we complacent? Are we disdainful or hungry? Billy Graham famously once said that this book, speaking of the Bible, will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Do we pay attention? Number two, are we doing anything in our life differently as a result of what we're hearing? Are we doing anything in our life differently as a result of what we're hearing of God's word? Three, if you have doubts, where, where are those roots of doubt coming from? Is it anger over loss? Is it pride? Or is it an honest question? Where are those doubts the roots of those doubts coming from. Fourth and finally, how long have those doubts been going on? How long have they been going on? A month, a year? The longer that they go on, the more entrenched they become. The more entrenched they become. So friends, you and I, we need to realize that we are called to vigilantly guard our hearts from pride so that we can listen with humility. We need to maintain that, that healthy fear of the Lord in humility so that we can hear the warning and that in, that in the end, God will always keep his word and then recognize the compassion, the heartwarming, soul-changing compassion that God is showing us through Jesus Christ, his faithful Word made flesh. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize it is your word that we need. It is your word that changes our hearts. It's your words that changes our lives. It's your word that implants faith. And so, Father, I pray that we would hear your words afresh, that we would listen to what you're saying. We would listen to what you are calling on us to do. God, we have the opportunity this morning, Lord, to listen afresh, to hear the warning, to hear of your compassion, to think to ourselves, Father, that today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. And so, Lord, I want to ask that as we are hearing your words, as we are considering your scriptures, 
that we would surrender, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, we wouldn't stiffen our necks, but that in humility, we would surrender. That we would allow your word to help us to humble submission. So Lord, that's our prayer. We invite you to do that work. Amen.